Well, if you would turn uh, with me to Galatians chapter 3, and this evening uh, I'm going to read verses 26 to 29. Uh, It's page 1170 in the Green Church Bibles and 1810 in the Large Print Bibles. Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is God's word. And I've entitled this sermon, Uniform and Unity. Uniform and Unity. Uh, Soldiers students and sports stars, soldiers, students and sports stars, uh, well, younger students at least, all have something in common. They all wear a uniform. The reason for the uniform is in order to identify them as part of a whole. And the uniform, therefore, creates a unity, doesn't it? Uh, Once the uniform is taken off, the soldier or the student or the sports star uh, can go about their daily lives however they please. I remember when I was a a student, as a teenager, in my secondary school, uh, walking home one day, um, doing something I shouldn't be. I'm not going to explain what it was, but it was upsetting some neighbors of the school by throwing things in their garden. Uh, They uh, phoned up the school and I was called in to my head of year. And I said to my head of year when I was told off, well, I wasn't at school, I was on the way home. And my head of year said, but you were wearing the uniform. And while you're wearing that uniform, you are representing our school and we expect better behavior than that. And so I didn't throw anything in that particular person's garden anymore. But the uniform was important because it meant I represented the school, along with all the other students in the school. The uniform represents a unity. But once it's taken off, well, then that unity can disappear because the uniform or the, and the unity of a, of a soldier or a student or a sports star is pretty, in the end, superficial. But in today's passage, we see that the Christian has a uniform. Notice how we are clothed with Christ. And this creates a unity. Notice how we are all one in Christ Jesus. But the uniform and the unity we have in Christ is not superficial because we never take the the uniform off. It is not superficial, but supernatural, and it's not for a season like your career as a soldier or your 
time as a student or sports star, but it is for eternity. So it's not superficial, but supernatural, not for a season, but for eternity. Now, Paul, up to this point, has recently been speaking about the purpose of the Old Testament law. And we ended last week by him telling us, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And if you were here last week, you would know that that means that we are no longer uh, under the law as as a child under a guardian, but we are now grown ups because Jesus has come and we have faith in him. And from verse 26, where we began tonight, Paul begins to explain the implications of being adult children of God. And we're going to consider in these verses two implications, the Christian's uniform and the Christian's unity. The Christian's uniform and the Christian's unity. So first of all, the Christian's uniform. You have clothed yourselves with Christ. But before Paul says that, look at verse 26. He says, so, so as a result of us no longer being under the law, but being justified by faith, we are children of God through faith. Now the word children here, children of God, is not always the most helpful translation. It's unhelpful, I think, for two reasons. One, when we think of children, we think of children, as in little ones. But the meaning here is not little children because it's talking about being grown-ups. But also the word translated here as child is literally sons. And it speaks of the inheritor of an estate. And in the ancient world, as in uh, up to quite recently, even in our own culture, daughters would never inherit property. Only sons would. That was the way of the ancient world. And in fact, as I've said, up until uh, in quite, quite recent days, that's, that, that used to be the case in our own country here. But the radical, egalitarian nature of the gospel is shown in that all of God's people, women as well as men, which we'll see in verse 28, are sons of God too. And so the, this was radical in, in Paul's day, that, that the women are sons of God, that, that they inherit too. And I think we, we miss that implication a little bit when it's children rather than sons. So the word son, I think, draws that out a bit more. To be a son of God, an heir, is an immense privilege. For not only does it speak of what we receive in the promise, that is forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, eternal life, but it speaks of our relationship to God as our father, which Paul will draw out more in in chapter 4. A Christian is a son of God. Now, ladies, if you struggle with being called a son of God, us men are also called the bride of Christ. And we have to deal with that too. The point that Paul is making is not to make us feel weird or uncomfortable, but to show us the immense privilege we have as God's people. We are sons of God. We inherit We are the bride of Christ. We have that relationship with Jesus. What an immense privilege to be children of God, children of the God of the universe. And we'll delve deeper into the implications of that in chapter 4 with God as our Father. But notice at the end of verse 26 how we become God's children or God's sons. It is through faith. 
Do you see that? Specifically, as we've seen over and over and over again in Galatians, through faith in Jesus and his finished work for us on the cross. You become sons of God, not by being born into it physically, but by being, in the words of John chapter 3, born again, by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. So you can't be born into a Christian Uh, into the kingdom of God by being in a Christian family or something like that. We become children of God through putting our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done. And Paul has said that over and over in Galatians. If you haven't got that, you haven't got Galatians. That's the the key part of the book, really. But verse 27 goes into some detail about what the results are of having faith in Jesus. And he explains that one of those results in terms of putting on a uniform. Look again at verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Being baptized into Christ here speaks of the commitment that is made when we put, ourself, uh, put our faith sorry, in Jesus. And this commitment is shown by water baptism. It is an outward expression of the reality of what has happened to us and of the new relationship we have with Jesus. We die to our old life. We rise to a new life. Our sins have been cleansed and washed away. And we raise to a new life as forgiven people, children of God. Now in our church, we practice believer's baptism. Uh, For those of you that perhaps haven't seen that, right underneath where I'm standing is a big hole (laughs) that fills with water where we practice uh, believer's baptism. That is that baptism by immersion is for people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. This was something that was modeled by Jesus. Uh, He was baptized in this way. It was commanded by Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel. The disciples are told to baptize people who are his disciples. And it was practiced by the apostles. In the book of Acts, we see people become followers of Jesus. They believe and then they are baptized. Baptism is distinguished from faith in Jesus You don't become a Christian by being baptized, but it is part of becoming a Christian because it's following the command of Christ to make that commitment to him through showing what he has done for us. And what baptism does is show that uh, in a very um, pictorial way. So whilst baptism doesn't do anything to you, it signifies that radical new commitment to following Jesus, of dying to our old life and being risen to a new one. In that sense, a a line in the sand is drawn. There's a new beginning. It is putting on a new uniform. And in fact, baptism can be described as putting on a new uniform through the words that Paul speaks of here. And that's why we require, with some exceptional circumstances, baptism for membership of our church. Because that, that, that's because a baptized believer has made the commitment to Jesus 
that is needed if one is going to commit to a local church family. It shows your commitment to Jesus. But not only that, baptism is not an individual activity. It's not just something between you and God. It's a church ordinance. Because as well as the individual committing to Jesus, the church body who witnesses that recognizes that person as a follower of Jesus and then welcomes them into the family of God, saying, we believe you are one of God's children. So let me just say that if anyone uh, here tonight has not been baptized and is interested in talking more about that, then come and speak to one of the elders who would be glad to speak to you about baptism. But notice how Paul says that Christians are baptized into Christ. The phrase into or in Christ is one which Paul uses over 140 times in his letters. It speaks of an intimate relationship, a oneness, like a, like a marriage. And that's what baptism in water illustrates. We are baptized, we are in Christ. And this oneness explained in baptism is also symbolized in being clothed with Christ. Clothing is another favorite metaphor of Paul's for explaining how we are new people when we are born again. Uh, Paul speaks of this elsewhere. Uh, Romans chapter 13, verse 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. You see the clothing illustration there. Ephesians 4, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. You see it's a, a metaphor Paul uses regularly to, to put on, to, to, to clothe yourselves. And in fact, speaking of baptism as putting on Christ as clothing uh, is something that the ancient church uh, did in a very practical way. For when in the, in the early church, when people were baptized, they literally got a new set of clothes to put on afterwards. Because in our day, it doesn't mean quite so much because we, most of us have a, a wardrobe full of clothes or have, have, have various outfits we could put on. But in those times, people literally just had one outfit, maybe a, a, or maybe two. And so they, they literally shed their old clothes and they got some new ones to put on when they came up out of the water. Symbolizing that they've made a new commitment, a new life now with new clothes. And the new clothing is the Christian uniform. It is the, the same outfit for all of us, Christ. Well, speaking of our relationship with Christ in this way has numerous implications for us. Uh, first of all, um, it, it identifies us as Christians, doesn't it? It identifies us, like the, the, the soldier or the student or the sports star. Uh, John the Baptist in the Bible, you may remember, wore camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, this not, was not because uh, John the Baptist was some kind of eccentric guy or, uh, or he tr was trying to set a fashion trend. No, what John the Baptist was doing, he was wearing the outfit 
that identified him as a prophet like Elijah. And so when people looked at John the Baptist, they saw this is a prophet. This is one like Elijah. Some people thought he was Elijah. And in fact, John the Baptist took on, in wearing that outfit, the characteristics of Elijah, of a prophet. And for us, clothing ourselves with Christ means we we take on his characteristics. We behave like one of his followers. We look like a Christian. Uh, A football or a rugby shirt identifies what team you are in. Uh, But in 1996, some of you who are football fans may remember that Man United were losing 3-0 at half-time against Southampton. And it was a big shock because they'd won 10 of their previous 11 games. And Alex Ferguson at half-time decided that they needed to change their kit. You may see their Ryan Giggs in two different ones. It's the same game. Because Alex Ferguson said, well, the reason we're losing 3-0 is because the sunshine clashes with our kit and the players can't identify each other. Well, they still lost 3-1, but they did do better in the second half. Whether the kit made a difference, I don't know. But what we are, what the, but the, the, the kit they were wearing is, 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 it was important because it was how they identified who was on the team. And I guess the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Are you seen as a Christian? Or do you clash with the world? Do people know that you are a believer of Jesus Christ? Do they see in your life that you are different from everybody else? Or are you like a football supporter who is too embarrassed to wear the shirt? Have you ever, uh, some, some football, you know, us um, coming from Plymouth and wearing a Plymouth Argyle kit can be quite embarrassing. <laughs> no one knows who they are. And when you do tell them, they'll laugh at you. But we can be like be Christians in the same way, can't we? Embarrassed, not, quite, not wanting to be identified as a follower of Jesus. So uh, 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 that uniform identifies us as a follower of Jesus. But it also shows us, this metaphor of clothing, that God is always with us. Uh, clothing is something that is close to us. It's wrapped around us. It's near us. It goes where we go. So too with Christ. Being clothed with Christ means we are never alone. And then thirdly, it shows that we are acceptable. Wearing the uniform gives us an acceptability and a belonging. Uh, You may know if you you go to a football match, uh, you may have sung the song, you're not fit to wear the shirt. Have you ever heard people sing that? If someone's doing particularly rubbish or they've done something uh, to betray the club or something like that, you might sing, you're not fit to wear the shirt. But you know, that can never be sung of a follower of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has made us fit to wear the shirt, hasn't he? He's made us fit. He's paid for our sins. He's cleansed us made us acceptable in his sight as a beloved child of God, and we are always fit to be clothed with Christ. 
Isn't that wonderful? Always fit to be clothed with Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian here tonight, you are clothed with Christ. And so may this be seen in us, that we would speak and act like the Christ we are dressed as, unashamedly being one of his sons. So we have the Christian's uniform, Christ. And having the uniform brings us together, not superficially for a season, but supernaturally forever. It gives us the Christian's unity. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And the unity that we have as Christians is radical in its social implications. Look again at verse 28. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul has been speaking about how we're no longer under the law. And the law was used by Jewish people to separate themselves from others and bring up barriers. In fact, Jewish rabbis famously prayed this prayer every morning. Blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be God that he did not make me a boar. That means an ignorant peasant or a slave. Blessed be God that he did not make me a woman. You see, that's what Jewish rabbis would pray. But these distinctions were not just Jewish. In fact, they were all over the culture at the time because Greek men thanked the gods for allowing them to be born as human beings and not beasts, Greeks and not barbarians, citizens and not slaves, men and not women. In pointing out Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, Paul was drawing out the essential human relationships and distinctions that exist in a society and, are make, and make barriers between people. And we, what we see here is, is culture, class, and gender, or ethnicity, economics, and sex. And in many ways, we may scoff at those prayers of the Jews and the Greeks, but those same distinctions are in our world today. And those same distinctions are what people put as their primary identity and characteristics above all other things. For example, a person's nationality or race or social class can be what defined them above anything else. But Paul is saying that the unity we have by clothing ourselves with Christ is such that those distinctions are no longer barriers to being accepted in the community as equal brothers and sisters. There is nothing that is a barrier to you coming to Christ. None of those things that put barriers in, those, in, in, in our society today. They don't stop you becoming a Christian. Now, it's worth highlighting what Paul does not mean here, because this verse in particular has been misused in a number of ways. So what does Paul not mean? 
Paul does not mean that these distinctions no longer exist. So when people are baptized into the church, they do not change ethnicity or nationality. They don't change their background or economic situation, and they certainly do not change their gender. And so, by the way, this verse cannot mean that male and female do not exist as categories of distinction. This verse does not support transgenderism or anything like it. God has made us male and female, and those are unalterable characteristics. They are biological realities. What Paul is saying in this verse is that both male and female are welcome equally into the family of faith. Is that clear? That's what he means here. So he does not mean that the distinctions no longer exist, but they are no longer barriers to coming together in unity. Paul does not mean, also, that these distinctions shouldn't exist. That is, we don't have to try and change our cultural background or our social status. We are welcomed as we are within these areas of distinction. You don't have to change the way you dress. You don't have to change your accent. You don't have to change anything in those, those kind of things. God is calling a people from all of these different groups, and that diversity is a good thing. Also, Paul does not mean from this verse that women can be elders in the church. What he does mean is that women are equal in value in the church, despite the roles being different according to how God has designed humanity and the church. Elsewhere, Paul writes about male headship in the home in the church. But this verse is not speaking of that. This verse in its context is speaking about being equal in our sonship, not being the same in our roles. And it's beyond the, the remit of this sermon to go into male headship in the home and the church and the goodness of that design and so on. But this verse does not undermine that. And it's, you have to be careful in, in, in some of the media and books, you, 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 things you watch and read, because this verse often is, is pulled out of that context to support um, those kind of agendas and ideologies. Paul does not mean that. He means here that men and women are both equally welcome into the kingdom of God. And finally, I would just say that Paul was not here either calling for the abolition of slavery or supporting slavery. None of those things are meant by this verse. Uh, elsewhere, Paul tells slaves to work hard for their masters and to treat them well. Here we are told that slave and free, including slave masters and slaves that come to faith, are equal in their value in the church. Now, if you're thinking, well, how on earth can a slave master be a slave master and be a Christian? Well, I don't know the answer to that in particular, but what I can say at the very least is this. In that culture where slavery existed uh, as part of the society that they were in, a Christian master could very well be very good to work for, and a, and, a, and a slave to a Christian master could have a better situation than being released in that culture. 
But what Paul does say here is this, that in the church, you could have a scenario where a slave is an elder overseeing his master in the church. You see? As long as the slave is a male, of course. Because the social economic distinction in the church is broken down. You see? And I would also add on the point of slavery that as more people in the society became Christians, slavery as an institution broke down more because of the radical nature of what is being taught in this verse. As more people believed at large that there is no distinction between, uh, between people, slavery became less and less within the Christian world. And Christians were at the forefront of the slavery abolition movements of later centuries. So what Paul does mean in these verses is this. The Christian uniform creates within the church a Christian unity that is radical and wonderful. That's the big point. The law separated peoples. The layout of the Old Testament temple separated foreigners and women and so on. But the new covenant brings them together in a radical unity that is beautiful in its diversity. The uniform of a soldier, a student, and a sports star gets taken off and they go about their merry way. But the Christian is continually clothed with Christ. It's not just a, a Sunday best outfit. And so the resulting unity is a continual ongoing supernatural reality that is every single moment of our lives. And so the challenge in question we must ask ourselves is this. Does our church reflect this kind of unity? In Pelsall Evangelical Church, we have members of different ethnicities, different skin colors and nationalities. We have members from different social and economic backgrounds and who live with different income streams, both rich and poor. And we have members who are male and members who are female. And so we have people within our membership of this church who fit all those distinctions that Paul talks about in these verses. All of us who are members of this church have been clothed with Christ. We wear the Christian uniform by having faith in what Jesus has done. We're sons of God by faith. We've expressed that through baptism. And so our church must express that unity in how we live together. The question is, does it? So here are some challenges for us. Let's think about where Paul says Jew or Gentile, or our ethnicity and our nationality. Who in the church do you have relationships with and speak to? Are there people in the church that you avoid for reasons of ethnicity? So if someone is foreign, do you avoid them because, well, I just can't understand their accent and use that as an excuse? Do your political views on immigration, which I'm not saying are right or wrong, impact how you treat those who come into the church who have been um, immigrants into our country or refugees? It shouldn't and it mustn't. Let's think about social or economic background. 
Would you consider someone less qualified for church office because they are not educated at a high level or they have a certain accent? Do you pay more attention to people who come in church that look like they can bring some money in and ignore those that perhaps are unable to? Would you be willing to take a rebuke from someone who is obviously poorer or less educated than you are? And also as a church, we need to ensure that we are accessible to those who are disabled and vulnerable so that they're not excluded in any way from hearing the gospel and clothing themselves with Christ. And let's think about gender. Yes, this passage does not speak about male headship, but it does speak against any kind of male chauvinism, doesn't it? Uh, I hear sometimes with the teenage boys how girls or boys are better than girls. Do you ever have that kind of attitude? Rather, we should have a very high respect for all women, teenage young women as well, and their value before God. They are clothed with Christ. And this is not just a teenage boy thing, by the way. Although we don't have women lead and preach in the church, they still... Uh, are Christians with the Holy Spirit living in them and are as good and able theologians as any man in the church. And so in home group, do you welcome the input of our women with their theological insights? Or do you, even if not out loud, just switch off? That's wrong. And to be frank, very stupid as well. Do we speak of our wives or women in general with stereotypical tropes like the ball and chain or tied to the kitchen sink and so on? That's wrong. So there are loads, I think, of applications that we could make from this. But what we need to be as a church is a place of radical unity within the great diversity that we have. Furthermore, we can... On another level of application, use the distinctions Paul talks about here to withdraw ourselves and not serve Jesus. Not because the church is unwelcoming, but because we are enslaved by an identity that is drawn from those distinctions. So, for example, we may think, well, I'm, I'm just too poor or unsophisticated to be part of the church. Or you may be trapped by our inability to speak the native language well and think, well, I can't contribute then. However, this verse liberates us from the enslavement to the power of race or class or gender because those things are not important. We are clothed with Christ. I think one big application from this that would be really helpful is for you to join a home group if you're not part of one. Home group is a way of different people clothed with Christ living together in this kind of unity. And it helps us to really get to know one another. And so if that's something that you're not part of and you're interested in, then do come and speak to one of the elders and we can help you fit into a home group. God does not exclude based on any of these worldly distinctives. He shares his blessings with all who have faith in Jesus. That's the point of verse 29. Just let's look at that verse as we uh, come towards the end. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It is belonging to Christ that makes us heirs to his promise, not any other worldly distinctive. And so don't let anything stop you 
from putting your faith in Jesus Christ and receiving the promises of Abraham, the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life. Although Christian unity is expected of us as we wear the Christian uniform, it is not something, I think, that comes easy. It's something that has to be worked on. And I think worked on even more as we grow as a church. We've been seeing many more people come into the church in recent weeks and months. The enemy would love to dig at our unity and chip away at it. He would love to do that. And so let's be wary of that, those attacks, of, of, uh, 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 of having these distinctives become so important in our lives that they impact our unity, rather than allowing the uniform we have to dictate how we're united together. And so if we're going to have a unity as God's people, then we need to be focused on Christ, donning his clothing, being amazed at him so that we seek to be like him, and with that uniform on, With the right focus on Christ, we can work at the unity, breaking down the barriers that would otherwise divide us. And don't we live in a world of much division in so many things? These areas that Paul talks about weren't unique to the Roman era. We see them in our world all the time. What a witness the church is when we are united to Christ. Isn't that what Jesus prayed? That we would be united, that the world would see that the Father has sent the Son. How wonderful and lovely it is to see and experience fellowship with people from different ages, nationalities, backgrounds, and so on, and work together for the glory of Christ. And we do see that in our church, don't we? But let's not take what is good for granted, and let's not ever think we've arrived at perfection. We need to keep daily putting on our uniform and working together for unity. Well, we're going to close with a final song, uh, which again expresses our unity together. As God's people, we praise our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stand together and sing, May the peoples praise you. Let's worship the Lord together in unity.
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.